0: Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio, and now our partner, Muse. I'm Patricia Carpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio. Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. And Muse, the amazing brain-sensing headband that gives you real feedback on your meditation practice. You can download the Meditation Studio app in the App Store, and we hope you'll check out Muse at ChooseMuse.com. When you download Meditation Studio, you'll get over 400 original and exclusive meditations by leading experts on everything from sleep, stress, and anxiety, to happiness, confidence, and leadership, and much, much more to explore. And if you've got Alexa, ask her to play our eight free meditations. Just say, Alexa, enable meditation studio. Today, join Muse co-founder, neuroscientist, Brainiac, and Untangle co-host, Arielle Garten, as she goes inside the head of her amazing guests. Thanks, Patricia.
1: Hello, I'm Arielle. And I'll be your guide as we go inside the head of some of the world's most extraordinary brain scientists, psychologists, meditators, those who are skilled in the mental arts. And we're going to learn both from their cutting edge work and their own human experience, how our brains work, how to optimize them, and how to manage the crazy in all of our minds. Today, we're going to get inside the head of David Eagleman, an incredibly prolific neuroscientist, particularly a perception neuroscientist. You might know him from his TED Talk, where he interprets the stock market through a sensory vest, his PBS special on the brain, or any of the New York Times bestsellers that he's written. He's also a buddy, a fellow startup entrepreneur, and an incredible guy. Today, we are going to get inside David's head. Welcome, David.
2: Thanks, it's awesome to be here.
1: So David, to start off on one of your fascinating topics, you've written a lot about memory and how who we think we are is defined by our memories. But in fact, those memories are quite changeable. Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah. Memory is a myth making machine and we're constantly reinventing our past to keep it consistent with who we think we are. And so it's it's this <laughs> weird thing. I mean, I, I hate that we use the word memory and that computer scientists use the word memory because they're so such entirely different concepts.
1: Yeah, one is fixed and the other is so labile movable.
2: Exactly right, and you know the the amount of data that we take in from any scene from any event, we're just taking in keyframes and things that are important, but actually, even that's not a good analogy to call it keyframes because that would imply that we're actually capturing the real data, but even our memories are a big part of who we are. in other words, if I'm a certain kind of person and I experience something outside, then maybe I'll think um oh, that guy who came up to me on the street, that guy was really funny. And if I'm an anxious person, I'll think, oh, that guy was really threatening. And, uh, you know, d- my, my whole memory of the event is determined by what's going on inside of me. And yes, and then on top of that is the fact that we just don't remember most of what happens in our life. Our memories are like sieves. And yet we always have the illusion that we remember it well, which is something that I've never I've never quite figured out. And it's, it's an interesting mystery to me. When I think back on some you know, dinner at a restaurant, I might think like, oh yeah, I remember it. I remember who's there and blah, blah, blah. But if I start asking questions like, okay, what exactly was he wearing? What was she wearing? Who were the other diners in the restaurant? What was the person sitting right behind that person who would have been sitting on my retina the whole time? But, you know, do I actually remember that? What were the chairs like? What, what was the tablecloth? What, you know, like all these things, if if I really had a memory of the restaurant As I feel like I do, I feel like, oh, yeah, it's just a cinematographic picture of what happened there. Then I should be able to answer all those questions. But in fact, I can't.
1: Okay, so you and I can actually play a little game with this because we have some shared memories. Oh, great. So do you remember when we were at a conference and both of us were speaking at this conference? And there was a jazz concert.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs)
1: We're at the Biltmore Hotel.
2: Which city was this?
1: Biltmore, I I can't remember what city is in <laughs> Biltmore Hotel though. It was really really hot.
2: Okay, hmm. I, You know what? I remember. I remember sitting with you and talking. And there was another guy from your company there, and we were talking about something. Um, and we were talking. We were talking about Muse and what was going on with that. Um, that's my entire memory of it.
1: Do you remember we were sitting at a concert and I was pregnant? And you put your hand on my stomach and felt the baby move.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I do remember, actually. But I wouldn't have remembered that had you not reminded me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: As I was thinking about this, I started to have access to the memories of that conference. And the things that I could remember that were most relevant was I wanted to go swimming. Yeah. (laughs) I tried to get you to go swimming as well. I don't know if you remember that. Um, And the other thing I remembered was how good the food was. Because again, I was pregnant, so I had a really selective filter on that event. <laughs> the food tasted really good.
2: <laughs> That's great.
1: Yeah. So it, the baby in the stomach that you felt.
2: Oh, hi. I remember you from when you were an embryo.
1: Yeah, you remember this embryo.
2: Yes. Hey.
1: This is David. Can you say hi, David?
2: Hi. Hi. How old are you now?
1: Two. Yeah, he just turned two.
2: What a cool kid.
1: All right, say bye-bye, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we both have kids. and You must think a lot about child development. Yeah. Can you share what goes on inside the brains of babies and how they develop and change?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the main thing is that the brain of a newborn starts making connections. You've got all these neurons that are popping off, but they're not really terribly connected to one another. And then they start connecting more and more. And, and and that happens. And then, uh, you know, by the time a child becomes two years old, just like your child, um, that is the maximum number of cells and connections that he'll ever have. And then from two years old onward, it's this process of pruning, of cutting back the overgrown garden. And, you know, it's so interesting as a parent, one feels, you know, one is responsible all the time for trying to prune the garden correctly. But of course, it's tough. It's tough being a parent, doing everything right. My wife is also a neuroscientist and we Assumed at the beginning that we would do all kinds of interesting experiments on our kid—not not in a bad way, but just like you know, set things up and see how. But but as it turns out, as you know, being a parent is sufficiently difficult that uh, we don't have any extra time to do experiments.
1: Yeah, my friend Rebecca Sachs, a fellow neuroscientist at MIT, she did the beautiful work of actually MRI of her baby. She pioneered MRI of babies. Um, And so she's got these beautiful images of her baby's brain and her holding her baby in an MRI machine. And she was actually able to watch her child's neurons myelinate.
2: Oh, my God. Literally. I know. That's so terrific. And, you know, uh, Deb Roy at uh, MIT, he set up this thing, with uh, tons and tons of cameras and microphones in his house. And he was able to then watch the development of his child from day zero all the way. And, you know, it's it's gigabytes of data. I don't know what he's going to do with all that terabyte size. But um, yeah, but he's at least got that. And, and at minimum, what he has is the first moments of things, like the very first step that the child made and so on.
1: Yeah, those moments, those firsts are so delicious and so precious because they seem to define the moment you are becoming you, that that little person becomes the person they're supposed to be. But of course, we have some amount of control over who and what it is that we become. Mm -hmm. I know you like to talk and think about creativity. So what's your insight on how you become a creative individual? And I'm sure our listeners who are already deep in the process of becoming who they are would like to know how to activate the creative parts of their brains more as well. Do you have any advice for how to do that?
2: Yeah. Well, it turns out you know most of what the brain is doing is trying to uh, automatize things, which is why we can walk and eat and talk and so on. Um, And almost everything that we do in a day is automatized, and that's what you want the brain to do. But for creativity, which is this really special bit about what humans do, um, it turns out that's harder to get to unless you've got a... Um, you know, unless you're putting an effort into it. So the effort of putting into that involves several aspects, including things like, um, you know, having a risk tolerance and a willingness to fail when you're doing any kind of creative act, whether that's in the arts or the sciences. Um, Proliferating options becomes a big part of this, which is to say the unconscious brain always takes the path of least resistance if you let it. Um, it'll always come up with the fastest answer solution to get to somewhere. And it turns out that one of the most important things for us to do is, uh, just dig deep in there and say, okay, that was the first answer. That's cool, but I need a better answer. I need a better one. I need a better one. And, and to keep, uh, generating options. And this, by the way, is something that I learned that Thomas Edison did with, his, um, people who worked with him in, in his labs, they would come to him and say, look, I'm stuck. I can't solve this. And he'd say, great, come back with seven solutions to how to solve this. And, and that was a way of encouraging a, a kind of productivity, the kind of creativity that you don't get otherwise. Um, so proliferating options, is a big one, and not just proliferating options, but doing things at different distances from the standard, meaning you know coming up with some solutions that are like okay that's pretty good that's pretty obvious all the way to solutions that are completely wacky and everywhere in between it's really important to do that because we never know what kind of creative act is going to stick is going to work and um so it helps to cover the spectrum and that's the way you can feel out the border of the possible
1: cool so to reiterate what you just said for people so they can actually apply this as a tool Number one was risk tolerance. And I I often talk about this in my work, that your ability to manage discomfort and to stick through discomfort probably predicts your success in life. So the ability to have risk tolerance, to take a risk, to feel the discomfort and push through it and step through it and get to the other side. So one incredibly important skill and something that's trainable. And the second skill is what you call the proliferation of options, which in general human terms means... Coming up with lots of things. Yeah. So if you are thinking of, you know, you want to be creative, you say, okay, I've got this object here A and this object here B. What are the multiple combinations they could have? I have this problem here. What are the multiple dimensions I can look at it from? And one good exercise is to do a what if. So what if it was longer? What if it was shorter? What if it was fatter? What if it was for this audience? What if it was 10 times better? And so during these kinds of exercises every day can take the average brain average brain and increase your creativity. And by doing so, lay down new tracks, lay down multiple new tracks uh, so that you have multiple options for every idea.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And by the way, I just learned yesterday that this is apparently what the California math curriculum is becoming, which I was very yeah. inspired to hear about this, yeah. Yes, which is instead of the way that we all learn math, which is you just memorize like, okay, seven plus four is 11. Apparently the way it works uh, when kids get to fifth grade or something is that they're forced to, to say, okay, I don't care what the solution is, but you know, come up with five ways to get there. Like what is seven plus four? How might you do this? What are all these different ways you can do it? And And that's very cool. That's exactly the right way to teach it.
1: I'm so glad that education is actually moving forward.
2: Exactly right. This is good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's that. And then the third thing that I'd mentioned was making sure that you're hitting different distances of wackiness from, you know, like, okay, here's a solution, how I can solve this problem. That's pretty straightforward. All the way to some completely weird way to solve the problem.
1: So you are an incredibly creative neuroscientist. You're somebody who has a lot of both, you know, technical breadth and a lot of creative approach. What do you think it's like inside your brain? What about your brain makes you so creative?
2: You know, the funny part in life is how you can't run a control experiment on your own brain or on your own life. So it's just, it's impossible to know what it's like to be someone else. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, the only, the only thing if to the degree that I have any creativity at all, I, I you know, I really thank my parents for just modeling that and encouraging that. And that's, I think, the greatest thing we can do for our kids. And one of the things that I really like about living in Silicon Valley, by the way, is that just about everybody I meet here is, you know, running their own company. They're, they're doing their own thing. And that's very different from other places I've lived where, you know, for the most part, people say, oh, yeah, I work for this big corporation. I work for that corporation. Um, it's just it represents a certain personality type that, um you know, gravitate here. Obviously that personality type can live anywhere as you are an example of, but, but out here, there's just a higher density of it. And I think that feature is representative of creativity, which is to say, you know, the easy thing is to graduate from college and say, okay, well I can go work for X or Y or Z. But the, the, the more creative thing to do is to say, okay, I can go design the world this way or that way or that way.
1: The idea that there are more creative entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley would suggest that the environment can create it and the environment can encourage your creativity.
2: Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. I mean the alternative is just that uh, – That's
1: where the money is might be the real answer.
2: Yeah, that's also right. That's right. Although Brian Eno, the musician, describes this as – the genius, by which he means the genius of a scene. So, for example, you know, there were times when Paris was a scene with artistic genius because there was enough of a density of people there. There have been times and places for writers, for painters, for this. And you know, Silicon Valley is obviously one of those places right now for tech. So, yeah, there is this interesting feedback loop where as you start getting more and more people, you get these interesting properties.
1: So I know one of the things that you think a lot about is how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the world around us. And often we perceive the world around us not as it is, but as we are. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Who we are comes about as a you know conflation of our genetics and every life experience we've ever had. Those intertwine to make us a particular kind of person. So um, a person who you know loves this kind of thing and is scared of this kind of thing and is attracted to that kind of thing and um and so on so the way that we see the world has everything to do with that in other words if you and i were to both walk outside here um together and and look at the scene i would see particular things and you would see particular things even though the data is exactly the same and if we took Um, you know, some, some AI visual recognition, it would say, okay, there's a tree, there's a person, there's a car, blah, blah, blah. But you and I would see completely different things depending on who we are, depending on what's important to us. Um, You know, if I'm an architect, I'm going to notice features of that building. If I'm a botanist, I'm going to notice features of the tree. If I'm a car enthusiast, I'm going to notice that interesting car over there. If I'm a road paver, I'll notice how well the road is done or poorly it's done and so so on. Anyway, it just depends on what my experiences are Um, and what my experiences are, of course, have a lot to do with my genetic predispositions and what things have attracted me in life.
1: So who we are is the sum total of our human experience?
2: Yeah, plus our genetics, And of course, the interesting part about the intertwining of genes and experience is that that makes you who you are at this moment. And that steers your very next choice. And your very next choice feeds back onto what your experiences are. So in other words, I might choose to go out to the dance club right now, or I might choose to go curl up in a corner and read a book. And that also changes the kind of life experiences that I'm having and where things go from there.
1: So who we were suggests who we will become.
2: That's right. Although that, that leap is difficult because the world is so unpredictable. So yeah, who we are combined with what happens next in the world determines what we become next. Yeah.
1: And you've written that not only is who we are this malleable, constantly changing thing, but so is the reality around us. And so we're actually constructing reality as we move through the world and perceive it. Can you unpack that a bit for me?
2: Well, it turns out um of course, you know most of the activity in the um most of the activity in the brain is internally generated, and so when it comes to something like vision, it's almost all about what's happening here, and that is modulated just a little bit by the tiny amounts of data dribbling in through these holes in the skull
1: so in other words, for those people who aren't looking at the holes in our skull, we have these tiny, tiny little areas in our brain, on our face, we have two little dimes on our eyes, you know, tiny little pinholes relatively on our ears that allow incoming information. And that's the sensory perception apparatus that you're referring to.
2: That's exactly right. And yet the weird mystery of the whole thing is that essentially everything about vision is is an internal process. And uh, when you look at the anatomy, you find that the amount of input to the visual cortex that's coming from the eyes is less than five percent. So hmm. mostly it's about this this um, you know uh, internal feedback loop issue. You're seeing what you are expecting to see, and something that strikes me as interesting is you know when 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 you hold a newborn baby. Um, everybody loves when the baby looks at them and you know mm-hmm. meets their eyes and stuff but what struck me is that it, you know it may not be that the baby is actually seeing the way that we think about vision because for the baby the brain is just getting all this random barrage of spikes uh, in these cells and it's trying to figure out what in the heck to make of it and i think it probably takes years to develop vision as we think about it um, in any case this is this is what i got very interested in and And I started looking a lot at issues about illusions and of course illusions are something that interests little kids and then adults when they become neuroscientists um, (laughs) and, and not much in between. So I got very interested in understanding how our brain puts together versions of the world that may or may not match up with what's happening out there and why.
1: So we have this constant stream of information. There's a ton of data in the world around us. How do we take all of that data and actually construct a reality from it?
2: Yeah, and it you know it almost entirely has to do with your internal expectations about what you're seeing. And so this this notion of the internal model, you know, we go out in the world and we think, okay, look, I you know expect this to be here, and the roads here, and the buildings here, and so on. When you're somewhere that's brand new, you're doing a lot more looking around and sort of. Um, referencing the outside data, but when you're somewhere familiar, like your home, you're spending most of your time just completely relying on your internal model. And it's only when there are violations of your expectations that you ever even become aware of something you know, if I walk in and I see some big you know gift box on my kitchen table, i would I would notice that because that violates my expectations. But as long as it's consistent with it, I'm just like an unconscious zombie when I'm you know, walking around somewhere that I'm familiar with.
1: So if you're walking around your own house, you're literally not seeing, you're just working on an internal perception and assuming that what's there is there.
2: That's exactly right. And this is the power of the, of, you know, what we refer to as the unconscious part of the brain, which is most of what the brain is doing is you don't have conscious access to, um, but you know, it's very sophisticated things that it's doing under the hood there, you know, like having all these expectations and making sure the visual data matches it and so on. But yeah, we're, we're not aware of that as it's happening.
1: So you talk about the fact that we can create new senses for humans. Do tell.
2: Yeah. Um, so I got interested in this idea a very long time ago about, you know, the brain is locked in silence and darkness and all it gets are spikes along different cables coming in. And yet, somehow, we get vision out of this, and hearing, and smell, and taste, and we've got this internal, subjective experience of these things, which doesn't seem to accord right away with the fact that the brain is, you know, in this little armored bunker of the skull. <laughs> and so, um, it's so weird. And and I'm I'm still, after all these years, just scratching the surface of this, but. But the issue I started thinking about is why you know why does vision feel so different than hearing than smell than t- you know you wouldn't you wouldn't confuse these I wouldn't see something and think oh I just heard it or smelled it or something um, and so um, because when you look in the brain it's all the same stuff it's all spikes and as, as we know if you were to if you know if we were to look at a little hole in the skull and look at the brain underneath it and say okay you're looking at a little piece of cortex that's popping off what what part of cortex is that there's actually no way you'd be able to tell because it looks exactly the same whether it's visual cortex or auditory or smell or taste or, you know, what you're looking at is a bunch of cells popping off. So anyway, this got me very interested in the question of how the information is getting there in the first place. So when you look at the eyes, these are very specialized little features that um, pass information in a certain way. to capture photons. When you look at ears, What you're doing is capturing air compression waves and then turning that into spikes and sending it off to the brain. When you look at the nose, you're capturing molecules of different shapes and then sending spikes off to the brain and so on. So anyway, I started wondering, could you actually send off a a whole different stream to the brain? Could you capture a different kind of information and send that off to the brain? And the way that the brain figures out how to deal with any sort of sensory information is by comparing it with other sorts of sensory information and by um, correlating it with your motor output and stuff like that. So all of this is to say that I started wondering if we could feed in a new sense into humans by using something like patterns of vibration on the skin because your skin is this wonderful computational material that mostly goes wasted in modern life. We're not using our skin for much of anything.
1: Yeah, you've got a ton of touch sensors in there.
2: Exactly. Actually, the skin is the largest organ of your body. Um, the joke that I use in the lab is that we don't call this the waste for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> We're not using it. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. It's this very rich material, and I thought, what if we could put in, you know, spatial patterns of vibration but by which I don't just mean through time, I don't mean buzz, 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 but I mean, you know, like across big swaths of skin. And could you actually correlate that with, with something? So um, let me give an example of what we're doing. We're, we're out to, to uh, solve the problem of hearing loss mm. with um, vibration on the skin. So what we do is we capture sound and turn that into these vibratory patterns, either on the torso or on the wrist, we now use a a wristband. Um, And deaf people can come to understand the world that way. And it's actually not hard. I mean, the the surprising part is that on day zero, when they very first put on the wristband, uh, for example, they, we play them a sound to the wristband. So it goes buzz, buzz, buzz. And then we say, okay, was that a dog barking or a baby crying? And they have to guess which one it was. And people perform it up to 95 percent on day zero before they even had any training with it. So whether it's a car passing or a smoke detector or a, a microwave beeping or a cell phone ringing or whatever it is, it's, it's just sort of surprisingly intuitive, even if you're getting it on your skin because it's getting up to the brain and the brain can interpret it.
1: Totally amazing. So, just to to recap, there's a lot of information here. So, we can take an information, and our brain's job is to interpret that. And we know our basic senses: our sense of sight, smell, hearing. But you're suggesting that we can actually add additional senses. And so, you actually have a little device, so you can get little buzzes, little tactile sensations right on your wrist.
2: Yeah, because from the brain's point of view, it's just information that's getting to the brain. In the case of the wristband, it's just climbing up your spinal cord and up to your brain and, uh, and your brain says, oh, there's this stuff. Here's the important part about correlating it with other senses is let's say I'm deaf. I can watch your lips move and I feel it on the wristband at the same time. And that's how I correlate these things. Or I can vocalize something. I can say the quick brown fox. And as I'm saying it, I'm feeling it. And that's how my brain figures out, oh, OK, got it. This is how I interpret this information.
1: So our brains are learning machines and we're simply learning a new pattern pretty effectively.
2: Exactly right. And the way that I've come to think about the brain in the last sort of seven years is I, I just, I think about it as a general purpose compute device and whatever information you feed into it, it just says, okay, that's cool. How's it correlated with these other things? And what is the meaning of that information?
1: Wow. So what other stuff can we feed into the brain and derive meaning from?
2: Yeah. So we're working on about 15 different projects here. <laughs> um, Some of which I can talk about and some I can't, but, uh, but essentially my interest is in sensory addition, which is so not just for a person who's deaf or blind or, um, with a sensory disorder where they're not feeling their limb or things like that. We're doing all those kinds of clinical projects, but what other things can we do to feed in brand new sensory information? So whether that's stock market data or Twitter information or flying a drone, Things like that, how can we take in new streams of info and and come to have a direct perceptual experience of them
1: and how successful is it?
2: We've done things with drone pilots where they're feeling the pitch yaw roll orientation and heading of their drone as they're flying it they're feeling it on their skin, and they can come to fly in the fog or in the dark and 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 very quickly, sort of surprisingly quickly they just they get it they get what the the meaning of it is. Um, and maybe it's not surprising. I don't know. When you look at driving a new thing, like a skateboard or a sailboat or what, like some new thing that you haven't done before, let's say
1: learning how to snowboard.
2: Yeah. Learning how to snowboard. It just doesn't take that long for you to figure out, Oh, okay. I get it. Instead of using my feet to walk and so on now I'll just balance and I'll get high velocity by leaning this way. And I go downhill and yeah, it's just, it's, the part that I keep saying is amazing is just the flexibility of the brain to say, "Oh, okay, I've got a new body plan now, I've got a new sensory input now. That's cool. I'll just figure it out." So this
1: really opens us up to the notion of what we can become. You know, all all of the things that we can be and we can learn simultaneously.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I have a I have a few colleagues who are starting companies to do things with, for example, brain implants where you you stick electrodes in the brain and then maybe feed in new senses that way. But the truth is, I don't think that is the way this is going to go because neurosurgeons don't want to do these surgeries because there's always risk of infection and death on the table. And consumers who want to interface with other things, I don't think they want to go in for an open head surgery. And so to my mind, building a very simple, cheap device that can do this, that can get new streams of information to the brain, is probably the way to go. And, and I think what we're going to see in the next, I don't know, five years is the creation of new senses. And, and you know, part of my plan is I mentioned that we're doing a whole bunch of projects in, in my lab here. but. There are 2,000 projects that I haven't thought of and won't think of. And so by releasing this with an open API where people can feed in whatever kind of data streams they want, that you know, makes it a, a community science project to figure out what kinds of new sensations we can experience.
1: Okay. Well, anybody out there who wants to you know, know when their baby is asleep by taking data from your baby monitor – Putting it into your wristband and then feeling every toss and turn of your baby or every beat of its heart if you have an EKG on your little baby um, or any other piece of data that seems relevant to you, we can now transform it and learn it. You want to take math tables, take, take the math tables, download them all, stick them into your wristband, let it play at night. And let's see if we can have this new, you know, you used to put like the textbook under your pillow to try to osmotically get that information. <laughs> it's actually a new way to try to imbibe it and understand it with your whole self.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
1: So I want to totally jump topics for a second into the more metaphysical world. I know you think a lot about the metaphysical sense of the self and our consciousness. Are we discrete individual conscious beings or are we a part of something that is greater?
2: Interesting. Um, I mean, for sure, half of who I am is other people. And this is, you know, true for all of us. We're an incredibly social species who we become I mentioned earlier, it has to do with our genetics mixed with our experience. But the experience is other people and who other people are, and what they're up to. So, you know, one of the things that, this is just an example that ties back to the creativity thing. You know, great artists tend to think of themselves as, hey, I'm doing this thing that is totally unique and it's not influenced by anybody. But, but when you look across cultures, you find that a great Japanese playwright and a great British playwright, and a great French playwright and a Nigerian playwright and so on. They're all doing things that are part of their culture. I mean, it's their culture and maybe they've taken it to the next step, but you would never have a, a French playwright write a play that is like a Japanese play. They're just completely different beasts. And I, I only mention this to, to illustrate how much we are tied into our culture. There's no such thing as the lone artist, and in the same way, there's no such thing as the lone consciousness. We, everyone ends up in situations where they feel lonely or they feel independent or they feel whatever. But in fact, we are so crafted by, by everything around us. So, So when it comes to the question of what is consciousness, does it exist completely in your head with those being the boundaries of it? The answer is sort of. We know that if there's damage to your brain or something, then that changes your consciousness. But how that consciousness actually forms has to do with everything else around you, including the whole history of the world up to this moment and all the things that have uh, that influence you now.
1: And so how is that consciousness actually created in our brain? You know, it's the age old question. What are the neural correlates of consciousness?
2: Yeah. So, of course, as you know, there's the easy question and the hard question. The easy question is. What are the neural correlates? In other words, if we measured what's going on with every neuron in your brain, we could say, "Oh, okay, now you're under anesthesia and and your body still works fine, but your consciousness is gone. Okay, now you're back and so we can determine what the correlates are,
1: how they all come together. Yeah,
2: yeah, the hard question is why it feels like something, why it why it feels like something to be alive and be you? why it feels different when you're asleep and you're awake? Um, what is it that flickers to life in the morning? And you know the part as a sensory, Neuroscientist. The part that interests me so much is why vision feels the way it does. Yeah, obviously, we all know that things like colors are completely made up in the world. I mean, your your brain—there, there there are no colors. They're just different frequencies of electromagnetic radiation, and your brain assigns this as part of the qualia, meaning the 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 internal subjective experience it has, because it's a shortcut way. Instead of saying, "Oh, that was 490 nanometers," it's a shortcut to say, "Oh, yeah, that was." Red or whatever. Yeah, whatever the color this is showing up as. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the interesting part, of course, as you know, too, it's that we don't have a theory of how internal subjective experience comes about. And we don't even know what such a theory would look like. And the reason is all of our science about, okay, we'll do a triple integral here and do this and carry the two and blah, 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 doesn't seem to map onto the world of, you know, the smell of cinnamon or the beauty of a yeah. sunset or the redness of red.
1: Is there a path forwards towards answering that question? I mean, this, this is kind of the million-dollar question. How do we experience the world as us? Is the sense that makes, A, makes this a me, and B, makes this my, my sense of the world, my feeling of being alive?
2: Yeah. I think this is the great challenge for science, hopefully of this century, but maybe of five centuries from now, Because we don't we don't even know how we would link those two subjective worlds and say, "Ah, "Okay, when I do this and I travel and I, you know, um, you know, I do this calculation, I come out the answer. That is the taste of feta cheese. It's the it's just a a deep mystery. Um, So, no, I don't think we know the way forward, except to say if we can solve the problem of the neural correlates of consciousness, that might be a stepping stone. I mean, that's the hope that we all hold on to. But this is why. Uh, Our colleague, David Chalmers, called this other piece the hard problem of consciousness because he Mm -hmm. wanted to illustrate that even if we get the neural correlates, it doesn't necessarily (laughs) help us at all.
1: So what is it that people can actually do for themselves to enhance their own brains? You know, we're talking to a perception neuroscientist here who schools us on the brain. You know, from your learned experience, how can we all improve our own brains?
2: Here's what I'd say. I mean, the main thing that strikes me nowadays is just fighting this great thing that the brain does, which is automization, this thing that the brain is always trying to take tasks and burn those tasks down into the circuitry so that it can run efficiently in the world, which is wonderful that your brain does that. But but the thing that really has made us so special as a species is, is this extra bit on top of that about being creative. And so um, to my mind, the main things to do are to make sure that one is getting out of this automated behavioral patterns as often as possible. So one way to do this is exactly what you mentioned at the beginning, which is stopping and observing and saying, what am I actually seeing? What am I hearing here? What am I what am I actually feeling here instead of it being automatized? There are many little ways to get yourself into the habit of of getting off the path of least resistance. So one thing that I often suggest is you know, like if you're wearing a wristwatch or or a Fitbit or whatever, go ahead and switch it to the other hand. So anyone who's listening to this, who's wearing anything, switch it to the other hand. This sounds so dumb and simple, but in fact, what it's doing is just breaking this little tiny bit of automation, which is whenever you want to know what time it is, you look at your wrist and you're doing that. But now you have to look at your wrist and sort of pay attention to, it. oh, what, what am I doing? It's on my other hand. What does it actually look like? What does it feel like? And so on. There are a million ways to do this. You can uh, brush your teeth tonight with your other hand. It sounds simple. It's actually not so simple because you're so automatized with your one hand. So it'll really get you to pay attention to what the heck you're doing there. Um, One thing that I try to do every day is drive a different route home from work. As often as possible, we'll take a different turn. And what that does is it just forces you to look at a new neighborhood and see new houses and new trees and hopefully something you hadn't seen before. And this is a way to get yourself off of the automatized zombie driving that you would otherwise do every day. So there are a hundred things like this that you can do, including just something simple like rearranging your your desk, your office, just so that you're not sitting in the same place with the same thing every day, but forcing yourself to just break out of that. It's so simple to do these little habits, but they're good habits to establish so that you don't lose your life to uh, you know, a, a timeless, automatized existence.
1: So in order to not lose your life to a timeless, automatized existence, David Eagleman suggests that you take a new path every day, do something novel, switch your hand, switch it up, and actually become re-engaged in your life. Bingo. Awesome. Thank you so much, David, for letting us inside your head today.
2: Great. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here.
1: You can learn more about David and his fantastic work including his best-selling book, Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain, at eagleman.com, E-A-G-L-E-M-A-N.com. And if you'd like to read the show notes or see a video of our entire full-length conversation and gain even more insights from David's amazing brain, visit arielgarten.com, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. And if you're curious about Muse, you can check out choosemuse.com the shopping cart, you can use discount code UNTANGLE15, UNTANGLE15. Patricia will be back next week with more Untangle. Till then,
2: keep your neurons sparkling.